I'm Captain Don Graham. I'm the patrol commanding officer for LAPD Central Division, which is um, the greater downtown Los Angeles area from Chinatown to Washington and from the 110 freeway to the LA River. And what is kind of the responsibilities as patrol commander? What, what's your purview? Well, um, under the uh, uh, under the, the the supervision and partnership with the overall station commander, who's Captain Mike Orb, my job is to manage the uniformed assets that are assigned to, to Central Division. Um, the Central Division is the largest command in the city. We have 433 sworn officers and about 30 civilians who work here. And of those, a 260 of the uniformed assets work directly for me under um, the four watch commanders and the specialized unit officers in charge that I have. Um, I think that my partnership with Mike is a, is a very robust one, and so all of my experiences in both community relations background, um, the labor relations background are all coming to fruition now, and, and Mike allows me a fairly free hand to operate as his number two um, across, the, across the area command. But my primary responsibility is to manage um, the morale, mission, risk management, effectiveness, um, and development of the uniformed officers that are assigned to the division. Now, you guys are both excellent people to talk to. To both really oh, intelligent, great conversationalists. And I think that one of the reasons why I think your position is unique as the guy who's in charge of you know the line officers for this division is that you have a pretty unique philosophy on policing in and of itself. Can you talk a little I'll backtrack a little sure. bit? During the Citizens Academy, mm -hmm. you, you use the phrase like the watchers on the rock as a, mm -hmm. one of the speaks, speeches that you gave to us. And it kind of struck me that you do have a unique view of how you not, not unique necessarily, but good. I hope we're going to go with unique because <laughs> no. then I have a log. I have a hard job in front of me, but I, I just mean that you don't hear that very often. So tell me a little bit about that and then we'll talk about how that affects how you see the job. Absolutely. Um, I think part of it comes from the reason why I came on the job and why I do this. Um, like we were sharing a little bit before we came off tape, you know, or we came on tape rather. Uh, my, I had a very tough childhood growing up. Um, I come from a racially mixed family. My, my mother is a Filipino immigrant. My father is a 15th generation um, white American from uh, England and Scotland. And... Um, when I was born, I was born into a uh, into the family back east, and so I grew up in a very um, racially non diverse neighborhood, um, and suffered a lot of taunts and um, uh, and and uh, belittlement because of that. So when I moved to Los Angeles as a young teenager, um, what really opened my eyes to what diversity is was simply the the makeup of my first junior high school class. Robert Fulton Middle School, which is in the heart of the, the San Fernando Valley, which people have their pre-judgments pre, uh, about what that community looks like, but my class was full of diversity, especially compared to what I was used to growing up. And so um, those folks that I made friends with, good friends with, are still my friends today. Um, I think that part of that is what keeps me grounded as a, as a police officer in a, in a modern democracy. But it also filled me with a sense of gratitude. I really don't know what I would have developed, what I would have become had I stayed in Bayonne, New Jersey, had my mom not made the fatal decision to, fateful decision to send us out here. Um, but I developed the personality that I wanted, that I'd always thought about. I love being outgoing. I love being a people person. I love experiencing new things and seeing the world through different people's eyes. And I think that this city allows us to do that. So I find an immense beauty 
in the city itself. And so the idea that I serve the city as a protector just fills me with this incredible sense of gratitude that I can give back to the city who made me the person that I love to be. And so there's a lot of analogies that people they use with with police and and you know one of the unfortunate things about our society um which is one of the things that the, the citizens academy is meant to do is to break the stereotypes that people have of, of their understanding of what police are what we do the kind of people that we are and the job that we do most people's view of what police do comes from uh, comes from fiction television and so getting an actual exposure to what the real life of a police officer is like is part of what that Citizens Academy is for. And so when I think about um, what it is that we do and the service that we provide for the society, um, and I say not without a, a small smile on my face that I'm a captain of the department that provides that protection for the city that I love so much, it fills me with a sense of gratitude. And so when I think about the self-perception of police officers, I don't need to feel any more special than I am. Now, this is a tough job and it takes a tough toll on people emotionally, but we have a lot of great tools to do this job. We have the best training in the world, and I'll put my foot down about that. We have the best training in the world. We have some of the most enlightened systems that have been ever been seen in policing. Some of the things that the national conversation about policing right now are demanding from police officers around the country, we've had here in Los Angeles for years. Civilian oversight? The chief of police's boss is a five-panel volunteer-appointed board that the mayor assigns. And they're his bosses. He answers to them. They write his rating. They decide if he should be re-upped in his contract. They're the ones that would initiate discipline against the chief. We are the only police department in America where uses of force that are critical and could have caused great bodily injury or death or shots are fired is adjudicated not by the, by, by the, the uniformed authority, but by the Civilian Police Commission. We have an inspector general who is a civilian who he and his staff are completely independent from the police department. The inspector general of the Los Angeles Police Department has the same position within the department as the chief of police. He has a direct report to the police commission and has the authority within the organization to see anything, any report, any group of reports, um, any investigation. He gets to oversee and report back to the police commission. That's the transparency that's necessary. I understand that the role of a police officer and the police force in general should be the most scrutinized, transparent, and accountable member of the government family. You give us the trust to carry guns with a license from the government to carry them. You give us the authority to stop a person and temporarily take away their constitutional rights based on nothing more than our perception of a set of facts that are developing in front of us at the time. That is a tremendous amount of responsibility. And therefore, we should be the most transparent and we should be the most accountable form of government. So when I think about police officers and, and metaphors. There are metaphors about police officers being sheepdogs to take care of the sheep. Again, I go back to why do we think we need to be more special than we are? I don't think we're sheepdogs. That's a whole different species. At the end of the day, the sheepdog doesn't take off his collar and become one of the sheep.
I love meerkats when I think about analogies. If you've been to the LA Zoo and you go and you see the meerkat exhibit, there's always one meerkat that stands up on the rock. And that's his job. He's no different than the other meerkats. And they have their jobs. They make tunnels. They get food. They, you know, take care of the young. But that one meerkat on the, jo- on the, on the rock, his job is to watch for predators and protect the colony. And at the end of the day, he goes back into the meerkat la- lair and is just one of the meerkats. Because at the end of the day, when I take off this captain's uniform, this Superman suit, as I call it, I go back to the most important job that I have, and that's daddy. Because I'm just a meerkat whose job it is to protect the rock. Which is one of the amazing parts, like you said, about it, about learning in the Citizens Academy. You know, I've never really had long conversations with police officers. Well, about life and football and, you know, sometimes getting a beer or whatever. Yeah. Sure. It's amazing that people don't believe that. I don't want to say we're human beings, but to the extent that we're, are, we encounter people, we're caricatures more than anything else. Um, and one of the things that I, uh, that I love about this job, uh, I, I love having a sense of humor and I love being outgoing and I always joke that I, I'm, I think I'm far more funnier than I am because people don't expect a joke to come from this uniform. And when I say something funny or I say something insightful, <laughs> people look at me like, what? <laughs> and then I get to break out the joke from Men in Black and say, no, no, it's the FBI that has no sense of humor that we're aware of. You know? <laughs> and so I love that about this job. And one of my goals as a police manager is to make sure that the officers that work for me understand that they get to be human. Um, I don't disown the history of this organization. I know that this is an organization that is not trusted in some areas of the city. And that lack of trust is deserved because of the history of this organization. I see the film. I've read the books. I understand what this organization was. Part of the reason I joined this organization And part of the reason that I promoted within this organization is because I want to own, I want to own the past, but I want to embrace the future. And the future of policing, as we've shown, I think, over the last 13 years, is about relationships with the community that we serve. When they used to send out LA cops 15 years ago, when I first came on the job 20 years ago, it was about... Uh, my, my worth as a police officer was all about recap, was about productivity. How many arrests did you make? How many tickets did you write? Well, I wrote a bunch, and I arrested a bunch of people. In fact, in those days when I was thin and they called me the Graminator, you know, I had a very good reputation for productivity. But honestly, and I, and I share this with my young officers today, was I effective? We didn't measure effectiveness back then. We measured productivity. Partially because it was easy. Partially because it's something you can tell the public, we made this many arrests, woo Well, if you make an arrest in an area where there's no crime, well, what are we doing to ourselves? And so, the other part of that is the philosophy of community policing. Oh, most of the police officers that are walking right up and down the halls here can, can quote you the philosophy of community policing and partnerships and, and community input into the policing uh, and into the policing calculus. And that's terrific. But what does it look like? 
And that's the thing that I don't think we've got, that we didn't go into when I was younger. And I had to discover it for myself. What does community policing look like to two police officers driving down the street in a police car? And as I have discovered over my 20 years, it looks very similar to just being a human being. You know, it's okay to say hi to people when you're standing online at the Starbucks waiting for coffee. It's okay to take an extra 10 minutes to console a victim at the scene of a crime. And many of these things we do, I don't want to give you the impression that we don't do these things. But when you point to a police officer and say, give me an example of community policing that you've done in the last week. They'll rack their brain for some, oh, when did I fill out a special form? No. You know, it's when did I go up to that domestic violence victim and give them a hug and let them know that there was another human being out there that, that you're not alone right now. Or my officers that found the eight-year-old in Skid Row last night and got her out of danger because we're not sure when the last time she was that she ate. Or when you take 10 minutes to walk around somebody's house who just got burglarized and now thinks that the entire world is, they're vulnerable to the entire world and takes 10 minutes to say, let's take a look at your lighting and make sure, and your locks. And let's just take a minute and, and see how we can prevent this from happening in the future. Or given the baseball cards that we give out to the kids, you know, online at the, at the ice cream shop. That's what community policing is. Because that's where trust is built. You know, they always say in a hostage situation, right? You always want to, to tell them your first name and get your first name. Why is that? Because of the psychology of dehumanization, right? So, in essence, if you shut yourself off from humans, it's very easy to dehumanize people. But if I send these officers out every day and I tell them, I want you to be happy, be friendly with these people, interact with them. I have my footbeat officers that walk around the historic court in Chinatown and footbeat. I demand that they bring me three new business cards every day. Find new people to meet, shake new hands. One of my sergeants embraced it so much that when he sends me his report about what these officers did through the day, he'll tell me, you know, we handled this many radio calls and we had this many traffic stops and we had this many fist bumps and this many handshakes and we gave out this many business, baseball cards. And I don't know if he was being facetious or not, but when I went up to roll call and gave him the major kudos, all of a sudden the other sergeants were like, hey man, how many fist bumps you do today? Because that's what I want to see. Because here's the... Bottom line, and I know you, you remember this from the, the academy. Who calls the police when they're in trouble? The community. Who signs the crime report? The community. Who's the, if you go to a court proceeding where there's a witness on the stand, who's the only person in that courtroom not getting paid? The member of the community that took time to participate in the criminal justice system. If we don't take the time to appreciate them before a critical incident, what right do we have to expect their cooperation during a critical incident? So that is the evolution of community policing to relationship-based policing. I believe in it 100% because I think I've lived it for the last 20 years. And so that, trying to instill that in the younger officers is becoming much more my, uh, my goal in this latter part of my career is to make sure that the department that I leave is better than the one that I came on. And I know that that's already a fact, from effort that I didn't do. But, you know, I would like to participate in that continuing evolution. This is a great organization. And the potentiality for greatness is even larger. The second largest city in America with the most diverse population in America. And, you know, my wife will argue with me because she's from New York, but I think we're right, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, to, pro and to provide a, a, 
a foundation for the next generation of LAPD to take care of my city. That's what I want to do with the next 10 to 12 years of my career. Let's shift gears a little bit sure. and talk about downtown specifically. There's mm-hmm. a lot of to do about the increased crime report numbers. Sure. And, you know, people are nervous mm-hmm. about hearing that and want to understand more what's going on. Can you provide a little insight from your perspective of what's happening? You know? Absolutely. Um, you can read on any of our websites what the, what the ideal goal of the Los Angeles Police Department, what our vision is, which is a society free of crime. Um, and so that, of course, is our ideal that we strive for. So that means one crime a day is not acceptable to us. That being said, um, before everybody jumps off into a panic, I think everybody has to understand the perspective. We've had 13 years of crime reduction which has been a terrific, terrific thing. And we've driven crime down to a point where it's almost uh, at 1950s levels, and that's not indexing for population. Um, And then we've experienced a rebound here in downtown Los Angeles. Well, I believe that there are quite a few factors that go into that, and not all of them are internal to the police department. One of them is simply the sheer volume of people that now call downtown LA their home. If you were to go back, 10 years ago, the total population, not including Chinatown, but the the total population south of Cesar Chavez would be about 5,000 people. Now, according to Council District 1, that figure is up over 75,000 people with another 100,000 units in the process of being developed. So the demographic of, of people who live in downtown Los Angeles is changing. Um, everything that's east of Alameda, that used to be, from what I'm told, from guys that used to work here back in the, the 90s, I mean, there were a couple of artist lofts, maybe a thousand people lived there, and there was one bar. Now there's restaurants everywhere. They're, they just built one Santa Fe, which looks like a giant cruise ship, just landed at first in Santa Fe with 700 units. They're building another 700-unit condominium complex right across the other side of Cyarc, um, down the street from uh, one Santa Fe. And the population over there is over 10,000. So when that many people are, being, are, are in a particular location... And they're adjusting to life in this level of concentration. That's going to cause a variety of things to occur. One is that people are going to bring their old habits to their new location. One of the habits that is just killing us for crime is the idea that your property is okay and safe wherever it is that you put it down. Um, We had 48 thefts last week in downtown LA. Now... Just think about that for a second. Chinatown to Washington, the river to the freeway. And we had 43 thefts. It's mind-blowing. There are 700,000 people a day in downtown LA, and we had 43 thefts. But of those 43 thefts, 37 of them were unattended property. People got up and walked away. People left stuff in their cars. People fell asleep at the library. Two people fell asleep at the library and their laptops walked away. People parked their bikes out in front of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, a drugstore, went in, didn't secure their bike, bike walked off, disappeared. I'm not, anybody who's downtown can see that there's poverty here. Anyone who's downtown can see that there is vagrancy here. 
much of that human tragedy is caused by mental illness, addiction, um, and simply not having any place else in the city that they can go and get any services with a hope to get out of this situation. But when that much poverty exists and coexists with people who have property and they leave that property unattended, the consequences are self-evident. Um, and I'm, I don't want to overly demonize homeless people. Don't get me wrong. But a good portion of the people that we arrest for shoplifting. Now you say, well, petty theft is one thing because petty theft usually doesn't have a suspect scene. So I'd only be speculating if I said, who's our thieves? But we know who the people who are arrested for shoplifting are because they're arrested. And they're, the majority of them are, are transients or have extensive criminal rap sheets for narcotics. And so this is what's fueling the, 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 the influx of crime. So we have an influx of new people who are creating new potential for crime. And then on the other hand, we have almost a doubling of unprotected homeless that are living in the downtown area. So between the new influx of potential victims and the increase in the desperation factor that exists in, in Skid Row, those interactions are causing some very negative crime problems. And we take a look at our violent crime problem, the biggest majority of violent crime in the central area takes place in Skid Row. Because who are the most vulnerable people in our society? These are people who are homeless, mentally ill, under the influence of narcotics, and have no place to go. So they sit on the street and they're routinely victimized. I can cite you three different women that I know of who have repeatedly come to the station and reported that they were raped on the street, either in a tent or in some back alley. But in all three cases, they have multiple rapes that they've reported over the last two years and they're all in the same area. And in the case of one woman, the same intersection. So what does that tell you about the vulnerability of the victims in these cases? Either A, she's so mentally ill that she's willing to come back to the same intersection where she was repeatedly raped, or that she's so mentally ill that she's made up this horror in her own mind. Because unfortunately, this particular woman doesn't, doesn't cooperate with our medical examinations or anything beyond coming to the station to say that she's been raped. And then you have another darker side to this. We have a great many people who use the criminal justice system in order to get services that they are not, that, that, that the society has not provided to them. People come and they report themselves raped or they report themselves robbed and injured because they can't get medical treatment without a crime report. They'll come and they will commit crimes to be put in jail to have access to these things. And then our detractors turn around and tell us that we are causing, the, we're criminalizing poverty and we're criminalizing homelessness. My answer to that is, where is everybody else? If we have this rampant mental illness problem that everybody knows about, so much so that the state of California passed a proposition to where 1% of millionaires' income goes directly to a fund earmarked for mental illness, where is that money? 
where are the social services? Now, we have started to see movement on this front, but that's because of the, the, the media has started to pay attention to this problem. After decades and decades and decades of neglect, the last time downtown was paid this kind of problem to our homeless problem is when we discovered that um, hospitals and even governmental jurisdictions around the county were dumping homeless people in downtown LA and transferring their problems to us. That was the last time that there was any real attention. But now, all of a sudden, there's a lot of attention that's being paid to homeless. And thank goodness. Because mm -hmm. if you continue to apply a police solution to a social poverty problem, and then all of a sudden, you're dissatisfied with police outcomes, because what else can I provide you but police outcomes? Why are you mad at the police? If you... If, if you have to fix a pair of glasses because the screw came out and you choose to use a hammer and you break your glasses, why would you be mad at the hammer? I don't understand that. So when the application of the people who are responsible for regulating street services and picking up trash and, and doing outreach to mental illness and putting them in programs that will actually matter getting the filings on felony criminals who commit felony crimes in Skid Row against other people who just happen to be felons and say, well, we can't file that case because the victim, you know, nobody's going to believe that victim. So what does that tell society? And how do we get that crime to stop? So there are a lot of external factors that go into what you see on paper. Now, there's another real aspect to this. And, you know, the LA Times did a story late, or early last year where they talked about, are we really complying with the, the um, universal crime reporting guidelines that are set down by the FBI? Now, there is a little bit of a, a um, divergence between the penal code definition of an assault with a deadly weapon and what the, um, the UCR, the federal guidelines say is an aggravated assault. And so because we were trained as police officers under the California penal code, we push our investigations in the direction of the California penal code. So if you and I are are involved in an, in an altercation and um, I punch you and, and knock you out, in the state of California, that would be a battery, right? But according to the UCR, that would be an aggravated assault. Um, if I threaten you with, with the weapon displayed, right? Not even pointing it at you, because if I point a gun at you, that's an assault with a deadly weapon, hands down. But if I, you know, I'm wearing a gun right now, if I say, I'm going to take this gun and I'm going to do bad things with it, and you're threatened, you feel a threat, oh my God, this guy's going to do something, he's going to hurt me. That's a criminal threat. That's a felony crime. But we had not classified that as an aggravated assault because there was no attack that took place. But according to the UCR, that is an aggravated assault. So now we had to reclassify what we had, what we originally captured as um, uh, criminal threats reports as aggravated assaults. And then there are other things where we have crimes that involve weapons that in no way are going to be able to, to, to result in great bodily injury. Mm -hmm. But because a weapon is used in the commission of the crime, it gets classified as an aggravated assault. So our statistics show that our aggravated assault crimes are up over 80%. 
But our battery crimes, our simple assault crimes, are not even up 1%. The last time I checked the number, we had 911 versus 914, right? Now think about that for a second. Downtown Los Angeles, you know, 700,000 people at the height when people all come to work, and we've had a grand total of 914 simple assault crimes through the third week of August. 914? I don't even think that's a calculable percentage. I was going to grab the calculator, but it doesn't seem like a lot. And so when you're talking about a percentage increase, you know, you can often be talking about one or two isolated cases that cause a pretty large percentage increase. Certainly. And especially when you talk about the diminutive numbers that we're talking about. You know, you look at the, if you look at statistics and we talk about sex crimes, which is just a tragedy in itself, because there's so many divergent stories that happen out there that deal with sex crimes in Skid Row. Um, you know, I'll tell you one personally, I'm driving down the street and I see a man who seems to be crawling on top of a woman and her face, she looked at me. Now, I drive a captain's car, so it's not a fully marked black and white. And so this guy was fully intent on what he was doing, pulling his penis out and looked like he was ready to attack. And she looked up at me and saw the police uniform and her eyes got bright and I got out of the car hey man what are you doing what are you doing and he was just so intent on what he was doing I had to actually pull my gun and point it at him and, 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 and pull him in the direction where he could see it get off of her right now I'm the police and finally he complied now he happened to be so inebriated that I don't even think he could have finished the act that he was starting but it was clear that he was attacking this woman so additional units came he had a, he had a warrant for something else so we ended up arresting him taking the station by the end of the investigation, when I checked back the next day, she'd completely reneged on the entire thing. Even I saw what happened in front of me, but she didn't want him arrested for attempted rape because she felt that, you know, they had a relationship and maybe it wasn't, maybe she, you know, when you, when you say, well, where is your self-esteem? No means no. We understand these things. I'm here to help you. And yet, that particular crime went in that direction. And so she refused to cooperate with a sex crimes investigation. This was something I saw firsthand with my own eyes. So, but if you calculate the, uh, the raw numbers, I think 1.4 sex crimes a week is our goal. So last week, we had two sex crimes, one of which um, involved a, a woman who got incredibly inebriated and high, woke up the next morning with her clothes on and came and reported that she was raped he, at, while she was at her apartment, even though the video in her apartment showed that while she was inebriated, she left the apartment for the entire night and then returned back. But you know, we're the police, so if you tell us, we're going to take the report and we're going to investigate it. And then. We had another crime that turned out to be a domestic violence dispute between two people who had extensive criminal rap sheets. And she had stated that he had raped her and then she ended up pounding him with an object. So he ended up going to the hospital and she had a felony warrant herself, so she ended up going. So um, that's one of those convoluted cases where we really don't know what happened because she cooperated with the SART exam, but there wasn't any evidence that she was actually sexually assaulted so um but we get 1.4 a week so according to our statistics we failed and we were over 50 percent yeah wow so, what a tough hurdle to climb yeah. too i mean you you pointed out obviously some very important overlaps here uh not the least of which is uh influx of people from not used to living in downtown i've been here for 13 years so 
when people are like, it's worse than it's ever been. I'm like, you're out of your mind. <laughs> like, this is definitely not worse than it's ever been. Um, but it brings into that question of situational awareness, for one. Are there things that you would stress to listeners? You know, here's what you should be doing walking down the street in general. Absolutely. Okay, so the first thing that you have to do is you have to be aware of your surroundings. Right. I mean, it's the first, situational awareness is the first rule of martial arts. You have to understand what's going on in your environment. We take, tragically, enough crime reports where people get their phones snatched out of their hands and people run away into the crowd because they're walking and they're texting or they're walking and they're paying attention to something completely different than what's actually going on around them. So that's number one. Um, number two is that unattended property thing. I can't stress enough. You got to watch your stuff. You know, we uh, we have situations, and I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut. You know, we have situations where people put their phone down so that they can go use the bathroom in Starbucks and come back and their phone is gone, all the way down to people at the convention center who've got $15,000 cameras, and they're like, oh, this will be fine for 10 minutes while I go off and talk to my friend, and they come back and their camera's gone. Like, and that uh, clearly inside the convention center that's not some transient that's walking around waiting to snatch up a camera that's a professional thief that got his uh, that made his way into a convention center just waiting for that guy to leave his camera there so awareness of what uh, of your stuff is lock your doors three burglaries we had this week two of them unlocked doors unlock front door unlock back door Right? In apartment complexes, it doesn't take much to get by security if it's not being monitored. So even living in an apartment complex, lock your doors. That's why they come with locks. This is not Kansas or wherever it is that people can go. I had an old partner in Kansas. We never locked our doors. You got to lock your doors. Car doors, bike doors, whatever doors. You got a door, lock it. If you have something that locks, lock it. Lock it. Right? If it comes with a lock, you. If it comes with a lock, lock it. <laughs> got a key, lock it. Got a combo, lock laugh, it. But that sounds so. It sounds so elementary to an urban, experienced live, person who lives here, but from people who live in other places in life. And then here's another very interesting thing. Most people believe that there's a continuum of security, and at the other end of security is insecure. Well, I think that that's a falsehood. The other end of the continuum from secure is convenient. Right? It's very convenient to leave a ton of cash in your car in case you need it. It's very convenient not to lock your front door so you can go in and not have to worry about fumbling around with your keys. It's very convenient to do a lot of the things that we do that make ourselves much more susceptible to crime. The FBI says that there's a three-legged stool that's involved with crime, and if you remove any one of the three legs, you, a crime will not occur. One of those legs is the will to commit a crime. You and I can't control that. That's about that individual, their morality, their mental illness, their whatever it is. They either will commit a crime or they won't commit a crime. And of course, that's a sliding scale too, because the guy who's not going to burglarize your house will sure as hell speed to get in front of you and cut you off because his manhood is developed behind how many car lengths ahead of you he is, right? Because he's got Honda Odyssey stuff to do. Anyway, um, so the will to commit a crime, number one. We don't control that. Number two is what the community controls, and that's the, the and that is the ability to commit a crime. Crime can't be committed if there's no victim, right? So, or if the victim chooses to harden the target to the point where the, the will of the suspect will not overcome the preparations of the community. That's what community resilience is about. So, lighting, 
locking your doors, hiding your property, not giving opportunities for criminals to commit crimes. For commercial store owners, taking a look at how your store is laid out and is your store conducive to a safe environment. I've been to great little stores in downtown who converted to iPads as their cash registers. Well, guess what an iPad unsecured sitting on the front counter two feet away from the front door of a business is? You know what that is? That's a rock of cocaine or a balloon of heroin because I'll just straight swap that iPad for one and the, and, and the dope man will give take that iPad and sell it to somebody who's going to wipe it and send it overseas. So thinking about how you lay out your store, what you do when you go about your daily business, those things are the uh, awareness and planning. Those are the uh, remarkably effective tools to make a community more resilient. Getting to know who your neighbors are in the building, all right, huge. Um, I just, there is one benefit to growing up back east, and in back east people are not shy, and everybody knows everybody, and everybody's up in everybody's business. Good thing, bad thing, you make the judgment. But knowing the people in your neighborhood, in your building, uh, knowing, if you go to the dog park, if you go to the Spring Street Park, if you go to the park behind um, the, the PAB, behind the police headquarters, um, and you know who's there, that establishes a very, a very profound comfort level for people. And then all of a sudden, you have a group of people who are in, enhancing their awareness of, of, of a change in the environment. When I was a senior lead officer in the Valley, one of the things that I used to tell my people all the time, because I had a 14 square mile basic car area, me as a senior, and I would tell them, look, if you expect me to drive around 14 square miles every day and prevent crime, you're out of your mind. I need you to tell me that something's wrong in the community, because I won't know. I just work here, you live here. Same applies as people go about their business in an urban environment. You gotta know who's in your building. You gotta know who's new in your building. Right. If all of a sudden there's a new tenant in the building and things have ha are happening that didn't happen before, well, guess what? You know? Yeah. So the Neighbors come and stay for five minutes and leave. Yeah, something's up, uh, right? Now all of a sudden cars are being broken into in the parking garage. Hey, guess what? Something's changed. And so having a partnership with the police department and understanding who your point of contact is would be your senior lead officers and how you can talk to us about developing issues that you're seeing in your community. That's an important line of communication that people can engage in to help make their community safer. Um, don't go out. I, the, the nightlife in downtown has exploded. It is a party down here. It is a blast, and we welcome that. We also welcome all the help that we've gotten from responsible retailers that, that are all over downtown. There are Our retailers are so good downtown that a core group of them started their own subcommittee without police influence to discuss best practices and then transmit them out to other bars and clubs in the downtown area so that everybody is universally safer. Terrific, terrific stuff. But it still doesn't help when a bartender or someone's not paying attention and somebody gets overserved and they are drunk, drunk, drunk. Don't let your friends get drunk, drunk, drunk. Control yourself about getting that inebriated. And if you do, if you're really a friend to somebody, grab that person, put them in a cab, and send them home. Because the other tragedy is that in the areas where the nightlife has increased, our biggest increase in violent crime, robberies, and sexual assaults have to do with people who are very, very inebriated. And so, um, responsible partying. I know that there are a lot of people that throw around the term Manhattan West. 
And I think it would be a great concept. The, the thing that we don't have yet in the city of Los Angeles is the robust transportation I infrastructure. I know it, yeah. And so when that happens, then we can talk about party all night. But the reason that we have to shut the lights off at two o'clock is because people have to get home. Yeah, and some of them drive back to Arcadia like that. I know, and it's a frightening, frightening thing. Mind-blowing. It is, absolutely. And you wonder, like, how, how long will the white line get you home, right? Um, but that comes down to, you know, if you go out in a group, you got to regulate your friends. You have to be the one to have the courage to say, dude, you are drunk. You're not driving home. Come with me. Uh, and, and that's what courage is. Courage is standing up to the uncomfortable situation and saying, this is not going to happen today. You're not going to die today because I let you drive home. Right? You're not going to walk out of there and get raped in an alley because I let you run out of here like a crazy woman. Right? Those things are just, you got to happen. And you know, some of the things that our responsible bar owners are doing is they look for unprotected drinks because it's true. There are people that are walking around and they're putting stuff in ladies' drinks and the next thing you know, they wake up the next morning, they don't know where they are, how they got there, and who the guy is that's, that's uh, getting dressed in the bathroom. Frightening, frightening situation. But um, our responsible bar owners are actually patrolling around and looking for unattended glasses, and they'll they'll take your glass up off the bar if it's not attended. And uh, you know, just the simple act of putting your napkin on top of your glass when you walk away from it, it attracts the attention when somebody else removes that napkin to do something to your drink. Very, very simple things that people. Can yeah, I'm over six foot, and I'm a dude, and I still put it. Put it in my glass. Now my wife does that because she's just scared to death of flies, and you know she's like, man. Flag and even getting my wine, right? <laughs> Not when you come down here and spend twenty six dollars on last. Yeah, wine. right. That's my way of saying I'm coming back. Right, back. exactly. Yeah. That's okay. Don't, yeah, right. Don't leave exactly. So. Those are the kind of things that we're, we, we outreach to the community every day. Uh, I, I have uh, um, my Twitter handle, at Don Graham Jr. Um, I try to every Thursday and Friday night to send out some sort of tweeted message to downtown LA telling them, hey, you know what? Cover your drink. Um, no means no. Watch your stuff. Um, I found this great picture. Um, there's a city in Canada where it is illegal to lock your car because people need shelter from uh, from polar bears. Okay. Swear to God, right? Yeah, all right? And there's a great poster, and you know, it's like, please don't lock your car because this guy's running from a polar bear, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I put that out on a tweet, say, hey, this might work in Canada, but in LA, lock your car. Yeah, you know, the yeah. polar bears are looking to get into your car; they're not looking to chase you into it. You know, so those are the kind of things that that we that we come up with, and um, and if you've ever met somebody who's addicted to a substance. Um, or know somebody whose family was destroyed because they had a sibling, a son, a daughter, a parent who's addicted to a substance and they allowed that substance to control them to a point where they allowed their family to be destroyed. Then you know the extent to which the demons will control someone. And when you think about the forces that that entails versus your car window and the dollar fifty worth of change that you left visible in your cup holder. Now, considering those demons whispering loudly and consistently in somebody's head, you think they're going to hesitate to do a thousand dollars of damage to your car to get to that dollar fifty? Because that's a dollar fifty closer to that next shot, that next hit, that next balloon, and that's what we're up against. That's the mentality. And until somebody gives me an absolute solution to addiction, and there have been some great 
strides forward, the, the Lancy's uh, uh, project up in San Francisco and what they're doing in Portugal and finding that the, the answer to addiction is human connections. There's great things happening out there and I support all of those things. But until they're, they're here and they're accepted and they make an impact and that my officers have an, an articulatable portal to matriculate people into help and services, it's up to us as a community to become more resilient uh, to prevent crime from occurring. And you know, watching your stuff, understanding the mentality that you're up against. Here's one that I love about uh, in downtown LA. Um, you drive by and you see uh, the really nice apartments with all the gates and stuff around, and then around the back there's a gate and it's being held open by a little orange cone. So you wonder for yourself in your head, okay, well how much money did they spend on all those gates and security systems? A million dollars? Million dollar security system defeated by a three dollar orange cone, right? Oh well, you know, groceries or my buddy was coming. So you have basically endangered the entire complex because what's the other end of the security continuum? Convenience. Let's talk also jaywalking because okay. that's a big thing in downtown and obviously people get a little kerfuffle well, i sure. for one think you know it's really not that hard okay you know um i'm not a, i'm not a huge advocate of being able to dash out there because people do drive fast and it does become but there is the question of how come people are not cars for mm -hmm. blocking the box and that kind of stuff and why does it seem like there's a focus on it well there's a focus on because people are getting hit uh, um, I think we have a 23% increase in vehicle versus pedestrian accidents. Um, so that's why the focus. And the focus is actually Chinatown and down south of 7th Street. Um, and then anywhere in the historic core during the daytime is going to be uh, susceptible to hits. Um, and the other thing is vehicle versus pedestrian hit and run accidents are also up in the downtown area. Um, and so there are three ways that we deal with an accident problem. The first is engineering. Um, but in many of these instances, you're not talking about an engineering problem, you're talking about people stepping into traffic when they shouldn't be. The big reason why traffic laws were initiated is to establish a sense of predictability so that you as a driver can manage the thousand decisions that you have to make every second because you predict that when the light is green, a car is not going to come into your path or neither is a person. And so the dependency on that is what allows drivers to make their best possible decisions. Now you say, well, why pedestrians and not drivers? Well, drivers don't tend to lose in the driver versus pedestrian accident quotient. And it's not drivers that are driving out of control. It's people who are in the street when they're not supposed to be. That's the primary collision factor to these accidents. So that's why the concentration on that. Trust me, I've got to drive to get out of this city when, when I'm in to watch, or I've got to drive around here when I'm going to things. So when I see people, you know, they, they're stopping in the box and they're doing, oh my God, it aggravates me too. But just as often as I see that, I see people who look and they say, oh, there's two seconds left on the little hand. I can make it. And they run out in the street. They prevent the left turners from making a left turn. They prevent the right turners from making a right turn. The light changes. Everybody's not where they're supposed to be. And everybody gets jammed up in the intersection. So you've bought an intersection with your willingness to just run across the street against the light. So that's another reason why jaywalking is not, it, it, it adds to the gridlock. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not a convenient free-for-all. And there are detractors out there that say that we use this as a tool to attack the homeless and go after these people. I have seen and cited <laughs> every walk of life just 
look at the traffic situation and say, you know what, I'm crossing the street. Right? Whatever they've got going on in their life is clearly more important than whatever we have going on in the rest of society, and they're willing to risk themselves bodily by walking off into the intersection. And everybody says, well, I didn't see anybody. You know what? I bet if they were taking a pull up wherever it is people go after they die, and they say, what was the last thing you saw before you got killed? Not a whole lot of people are going to recognize, oh, yeah, I got hit by that car. They're not going to see it. The reason they got hit by a car is because they didn't see it. So that's not really a great excuse in my book. Oh, I looked everywhere, I didn't see a car. Oh, okay, great. So we're citing people because we want to save their lives. Now everyone's like, oh, you know, this is a revenue generating thing, obviously, for the police department. Go on the internet and take a look at the breakdown of where your fines go when you get a ticket. If I wanted to raise revenue for my police department, I would send these guys out to write parking tickets because we get the revenue for parking tickets. And I can tell you, to get a cop to write a parking ticket, <laughs> forget about it, right? Forget about it. Are you kidding me? And people are under this crazy perception that cops love to write tickets. Right. <laughs> cops hate writing tickets. They hate it. You know, now, there are police officers. The guys are on motorcycles and stuff. That's their whole job. That's what they do. But police officers, they come on this job because they want to get what, whatever is in their head is what real criminals are off the streets. And to most of them, people doing traffic violations are not the, they're not the big criminals. And so they do what I ask them to do. And in this case, I ask them to write pedestrian tickets. And the number one place where we write pedestrian tickets in the city, in downtown, is 7th and Figueroa. All that construction going on, people are not paying attention. They see the gridlock on the traffic. They run across because they figure, eh, it's all right. Every, everybody stops, so I'll just run across in traffic, not knowing that the curb lane is still open and this guy's sliding down the side, or that bus that's standing there is preventing you from seeing that the traffic is still moving or making right turns or any of those possibilities going on there. My number one place where getting people are getting hit or crashing into each other is 7th and Fig. So that's where I'm going to have my officers writing. Absolutely. So, like I said, it makes sense to me because more often than not it's one of those things where you're saying like where are you going that that's that important that you don't have the 13 seconds to wait for yeah. to cycle like, and then the flip side is the tragic side of homelessness and despair which is uh, if I'm without hope what relevance are the laws of man you know so if you have these folks that are out here that are so distraught about their situation in life they're really not all that interested in obeying the law but that doesn't mean I get to put other people in jeopardy just because this individual's outlook on life is is going to be one of, I'm, I'm not going to care about following the law. People don't realize that it's not just the pedestrian that's in danger when somebody does something unpredictable. It's just as likely that the driver will do something unpredictable, like jerk the wheel and crash into something else. You've endangered other people. <clears throat> so... What happens after the citation is written is something for the courts to control. Police officers don't control the fines. We don't control the way the court proceeding works. We just know that that is a tool to change behavior. And so that other E, by the way, enforcement, education, which is what we're doing now, and then engineering. 
So if there's an engineering problem that's causing traffic accidents, Seventh and Fig, one of the biggest contributing factors is all the construction in the area. So there's not a whole lot of engineering we can do, but we know that engineering is a problem. But when those buildings get built and all those, uh, all the really unbelievably exciting construction workers that people seem to be staring at while they're crashing into each other, when all that goes away, I presume that the Seventh and, and Figueroa corridor will no longer be my biggest problem. So you also talked earlier about foot patrols, mm -hmm. specifically in the historic core. There's been a lot of chatter about Spring Street Park. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you balance the people, you know, bodies that you kind of throw at that? Do you think there are solutions that LAPD has to what's happening in the park and, and sometimes Fifth and Broadway also as a hot spot for illegal activities? Well, we know that there's a, let's, we'll start with, we'll, we'll start with Fifth and Broadway. Um, you got two drugstores there. You've got the MTA um, bus line terminal or subway termination, which is a fifth and hill. You've got um, the Fias Paredes, which is um, a, a very popular shoplifting site. Um, and then you've got a group of people that seem to loiter in that area um, that our intelligence tells us are, 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 are coordinating and orchestrating the sales of narcotics. And so we, um, you wouldn't know it, but we have a very heavy undercover presence that we have in there that are taking drug dealers off the streets and trying to work their way backwards to the people who are controlling the drug trade in that area. We've developed a good relationship with the Sheriff's Department and I hope that people who live in that area have started to see more proactive um, activities by the Sheriff's Department on the train platform. Um, and then we have footbeats that are dedicated to working that area every day during the daytime. When our bike unit is available, they're usually in what we call the corridors or the historic core area during the day. And then we have three committed footbeats, two of which work specifically those corridors um, from five o'clock at night to two o'clock in the morning. So um, do we have a solution to the problem? Well, our solution to the problem is always gonna be relationships with the community, right? When the community, when you see something going on in the park, call us. That way we can send a response unit out there and we can deal with the situation. And when the reputation gets out in the park that the police are very responsive to community calls in the park, then the activity stops. But the problem is that we have people that'll call the police and we don't show up in five minutes and then well, it's worthless to call the police and then they don't. And then they end up complaining to a media outlet or councilman or something. Like, well, you know, I call the police and they never come. Well, how many times have you called the police? Well, there was the one time. Really, the one time. Oh, well, we're sorry about that one time. But when we can have the personnel to establish more permanent patrols in that area, that is our intention. Um, we are on the verge of breaking up the Skid Row area into smaller, manageable geographic uh, areas so that more focus can be paid on them and focusing the Skid Row resources in Skid Row. Right now, our basic car A35 goes onto Spring Street and the basic car that is responsible for Skid Row is also responsible for patrolling Spring Street Park. Well, unfortunately, Spring Street Park can't get the level of attention it deserves because by need, 
the attention of senior lead officer Dion Joseph and his crew is there in Skid Row. So when the department grants us the, the, the permission to do these separations, we were hoping that they will allow us to break off that portion of Spring Street to attach that to Sean Lewis's basic car so that the, the A41 who works that area will be responsible then for the entire historic core. And we want to put a footbeat in the historic core permanently so that those guys are responsible for the park, for the train platform, for um, the particular hotspots that go on the four um, Pershing Square, those particular spots that um, require that additional attention. So the other thing that we know is that the, the drug dealing there is not just limited to your traditional cocaine and methamphetamine, but it's also um, people come and they get their pills from one of the, um, the drug the drug stores in the area, and then they'll immediately sell their pills on the open market, and then they'll come into the police station and tell us that they were robbed, so that they can take their crime report and go back and get a prescription filled. So that's an unfortunate consequence, but. We, uh, we, we feel that we have a very good working relationship with drugstore owners and we've been making some progress on identifying people who seem to be abusing the pill piece. So I hope that the people who are, I've, I've had some posit positive feedback. In, in fact, yesterday was uh, Rosh Hashanah and uh, my wife is Jewish. So we were at the synagogue yesterday and uh, one of the members of that synagogue works at uh, right across the street from Pershing Square and was telling me that he's certainly noticed the increase in police presence, especially the footbeat officers in the evening time when he gets ready to leave for work. So that was very gratifying to hear that from a completely outside source than I normally would. So I know that the, it's beginning to have its effect as the department Department continues to, to to settle in its its ever changing need to put resources where the problems are. We feel the department will give us the additional personnel that we need to put a historic core footbeat, to put a little Tokyo footbeat, and I do think that we need a footbeat in the government center as well. So, um, and footbeats in creating relationships in those areas, I think, will be huge in helping to build the resilience that we need to fight crime. Well, thank you for the educational sure. elucidation. Uh, you know, it's like I said at the beginning, it's always really great to sit and chat with you. We're going to have to do this more often. Absolutely. Because I'm going to take your whole day. <laughs> Just let me sit here. 